0: A reading from the Revelation to St. John. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus answered him, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything, and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think on these words of scripture uh, together this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to your spirit, that we would be persons that long for uh, your heavenly city, and we would be a community that seeks your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, we saw that uh, we started looking at John's description of heaven, right? He brings us into this space inside of this book, this revelation, um, in which he beholds heaven come to earth. And we said that one of the ways that we could look at that is essentially this is that moment when the prayer of the church across generations, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven actually begins to come fully true, like fully present, like never before, um, such that our world... Uh, becomes a place that is new creation uh, fully. It reflects the goodness, the truth, the beauty, the justice, the love of God's world with absolute perfection. And there is no distortion. There is nothing inside of that moment that in any way diminishes human life. Now, John then and today describes that world as a city, a city a city. And um, it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting metaphor to think about what heaven might be like. And it may not be a choice metaphor for folks, right? Um, When I was in seminary here out in the suburbs, one of my professors lived in the city, Harvey Kahn. He was a missiologist. He uh, did a lot of work in the realm of urban missions. He loved all things urban and all things city. Uh, And he never, ever missed an opportunity in class to simply point out to all of us as we were preparing for ministry that the story of the Bible opens in a garden and it closes in a city, all right? And he would repeat, this was his mantra. And it just surfaced from time to time to time to time. And he would take that little moment to sort of take a few little jabs at popular Christianity. And the jabs would go something like this, you know. When you go to a Christian bookstore... Logos Christian Bookstore, Natalie, and you look in the poster section or you look in the cards or you look at the art, let's not describe its value, but let's look at the art in those stores. What you're going to see is inevitably this, a mountain range, a lush meadow with sheep running around in it. You'll uh, see depictions, in other words, of nature right? You're going to see just the rural countryside. and Because why? Because in the popular imagination then, as now, we very often think that the only place that we can become still and know that he is God is there. We don't think, Center City, Philadelphia, <laughs> New York City, Times Square, that those are not where my thoughts run, and it's not where your thoughts run. But Harvey was always just taking these little jabs and saying, but the story of the Bible begins in a garden, and it closes in a city. And then the jab would just go a little bit further, right? He would, he would dig a little bit further. How, then you think, how could he possibly dig further? That is his critique of popular evangelical culture. Uh, he digs further into the ministerial formation space, right? Clergy, wannabe clergy. Most of you are dreaming of a lovely congregation in the suburbs somewhere, aren't you? jab. The story of the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city. Ha! And he would do that all the time. One of uh, my other professors, Tim Keller, latched on to this narrative of the city and and with Harvey, and he began to think about this narrative. And eventually, the denomination that Tim was a part of sort of invited him to go to New York City and actually explore the possibility of starting a new church. He was not, at the time, the church planter, but he was the consultant. Now, being a consultant is such a cush job. You sort of come in, you sort of observe a few things, you make a few recommendations, And then you get the luxury of leaving. And someone else has to implement. And that's what Tim was doing. But somewhere along the way, someone looked at Tim and said, hey, you know, can you preach? Do you know how to preach? And Tim said, yeah, I've done some preaching. Well, why don't you throw your name in the hat? Why don't you become the church planter? And the next thing you know, Tim is the church planter. And Redeemer is the church that was planted. Now, here's the legacy of Tim. One of them is just this. An entire generation of people preparing to be ministers and of laypersons thinking about the kinds of churches they could be a part of and the kinds of situations that they could live in changed. I mean, really changed. People started being willing to live in the city differently. Now, you could say Seinfeld helped that. And I think he probably did. And you could say some governmental policy changes inside of New York helped that out. And it did, of course. But here's the thing. What happened for Christians is just this. Our imaginations were expanded so that we weren't just thinking of the garden. We were actually beginning to think realistically about what would it look like to live in a city? What would it look like to pastor in a city? What would it look like to embody the truthfulness of who Jesus is? in some of the hardest terrain in our world, a city, and that happened. City church, our city church is part of that legacy. Revelation 21 brings us into this last space in which John is imagining the church, or rather heaven, as a city that has come to earth, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And I think as we think about it, we have to be honest, that it's a complicated metaphor. It's not easy. Uh, And some of us have moments where you think, well, God, why didn't you just stick with the garden motif? It was working so much better, so much more easy. Cities are complex, And our experiences of cities are very complicated, I think. I think we have to be honest about that, right? There's a lot of beauty in cities. They are places of collaborative work very often, right? As creative classes come together and we work together and we share ideas and we're mixing things up. And there's an energy in that that's really quite lovely. We have wonderful parks. We have fantastic music. We have coffee bars. And we have all kinds of drink opportunities. And we have far healthier lifestyles because we walk. But cities contain contain some of the worst and the most broken aspects of human life right alongside of the beauty. It's so true. The corruption is so apparent sometimes, and you wonder if there's even a way through the corruption. The dysfunctionality, right, of our bureaucratic systems, right? I mean, do you ever get frustrated with the PPA? Do you ever get frustrated with the way you have to do things in the city? of course you do. The brokenness of the city is severe, chronic poverty, food deserts, injustice of all kinds, violent crime, inequalities, unequal access to social services in our city, to health care, to educational opportunities, and on and on and on it goes. And even though the diversity, the city could bring about the beauty of diversity in one place so that you see that we're not a monolithic reality, our diversity just devolves into tribalism so easily. A lot of pain in the city. So why did God choose this metaphor of the city as his choice way of describing heaven on earth? Why did he do that? Rowan Williams observes this. He says that God chooses to describe our future reality as one shaped more and more by human beings' creative control in shaping their environment. There's something really beautiful there. In other words, God acknowledges your, his likeness in us. He acknowledges the place and role of human agency in the world that even he wants to create. We aren't just cultivating the natural environment, <laughs> gardening as Adam does in that first story. But we are building a complex kind of home that is shared by other people with whom we have to negotiate whose concerns we have to ponder and interact with as we live our lives. That's what God is doing in that metaphor. And so the city is the most sophisticated reflection on God's community, its future inside of the Bible. It's the metaphor he chooses to leave us with, wanting, longing for the city of God to come to earth. Now let's quickly take a look at John's vision few things people temple diversity and practicing the city of god today now first the city is a people right one of my favorite things to do with regards to cities this is what i lived outside of in the in the i grew up in the burbs of atlanta georgia by the way and i always remember whenever i would um sneak out sorry mom and uh Ride my bike to downtown Atlanta. Now, it, was a, it was a haul to downtown Atlanta, but, you know, we did stuff like that. It was crazy, teenager stuff. But you would see the city, the landscape, and there's something beautiful about the skyline. Uh, when we moved to New York City, one of my favorite moments was, was when we would be coming back up from the south, and we would be driving in our car, and we would come across the GWB. You have a moment, by the way, when you enter New York City. You're trying to decide which entrance is the best one to get in, and we'll get you there faster very often for us it was the gwb so we're traveling over the gwb very often at night because it's hey it's like 15 hours to georgia so here we are we're coming across the gwb and all of a sudden you're smacked with the skyline of new york city lit up and it's stunning the other day I was coming back from, um, I was driving back from New Jersey, right? So from, coming from the north, I had been over in, uh, Stacey and I had been over in Cherry Hill. Yes, it was yesterday. You're coming back across the Walt Whitman Bridge, and again, what do you see? You see the changing sort of skyscape of Philadelphia, and you think, wow, there's something really lovely about the this, this skyscape. There's something really lovely about the skyline that's emerging, right? The beauty, but here's the thing. When the Bible begins to talk about the city of God, it's not caught up in the skyline. It's really fascinated with the fact that this is a people. It's a people that are having to learn to negotiate life together and live their life with God and with one another in all of its creative complications, right? That's how the Bible begins to emerge. And here John says, this city is the bride of the Lamb. In other words, we're ready for this wedding, right? This moment of the most intimate connection of the people with God's own self. That's the picture of the city that John lands in. And so you read the story, right? And, and John immediately tells us, he describes a few architectural features, right? There's a wall, there, there are these gates, there are foundations. But what are they? They're people. The twelve tribes of Israel are the gates. The twelve apostles of the Lamb, they're the foundational pillars of this city. In other words, we're immediately sort of brought into this thinking of what is going on and what is John observing, but except the whole story of God now seen in its unity, there's something really beautiful, there's something really lovely about this story, right? The story of God's engagement with the human beings in ancient times to the people of Israel and in less ancient times but still ancient times to us in the person of who Jesus is as he establishes and fulfills God's kingdom in part. Now John sees it all coming into this glorious present and he's so thrilled and he describes it in its beauty. When you read the Bible stories about Israel, they're, um, they're not heroic stories, <laughs> by and large, <laughs> right? These are real stories of real people who struggled to follow God, who struggled to stay connected to God, and who very often find themselves in new spaces of doubt, new spaces of compromise, new spaces of absolute failure. And God's persistent call that they what? That they turn they repent that they come back to his love right 12 of the or 10 rather of the 12 tribes of Israel seemingly disappear from the vast majority of the Old Testament scripture but here what John does is he pulls these threaded stories and he says they're the gates the entrance point to what God is doing in this great city Jump over into the New Testament and we begin to think about the lives of the disciples and their life with Jesus. And the most startling thing about them in the New Testament is what? Just how much they didn't get Jesus. It's not that they were pillars of like tremendous faith who could ju- who just, who just radically embraced the truthfulness of who Jesus was. And they saw and they hung on to every word of Jesus. No, they were clueless. You know, and that gives me hope. Because there are moments in my everyday life as a Christian where I'm just clueless. I think I know so much, and then I discover that I live so little. That I don't hold on to Jesus' words any more easily than they seemingly held on to his words. The stories that are a part of this city are not stories of perfection. They're stories of failure. They're stories of doubt. They're stories, yes, of repentance and, yes, of faith, but an abiding struggle to follow God. Think of Peter's story. He would continue to struggle with religious and ethnic tribalism, if you want to put it that way. At least until the book of Galatians, where Paul confronts him. You look back at the Apostle Paul's story and what do you discover about that except that, boy, it was littered with tremendous violence and aggression toward the earliest followers of who Jesus was. It's an amazing thing that God chooses to wrap humanity into the work that he is doing in the world and into the work of his future. But the community that God has gathered, the people that he has gathered are gathered by an act of God's grace and not an act of our own goodness, of our particular story or anyone else's. It's an act of his grace that is manifest to the story of the lamb who lived, who died, who was raised. St. Augustine wrote extensively about the troubling feature of city life, And cultural life of his particular moment Uh, and he speaks of our lives being entangled in two city realities right the city of God and the city of man and the city of God is a city that's ordered by its love of God it's a city born of creation and affirmed in God's persistent commitment to bring us to the very end of of a unity of a life that is aligned in love with him that seeks his kingdom that loves him But our lives are so tangled up in the city of man, which is not a part of creation, but a part of the fall. And so it's a city, it's a way of living life, it's a practice of humanity that is reflective of human selfishness and a rejection of God. C.S. Lewis might describe this as the awful story of human history, and he does in places. And it's the story of murder and war and selfishness and all that that entails and all that that brings. But here in this particular moment, as John is sort of caught up in this vision, and he's looking at the city of God, which is the only city that is present. Everything else gone. And he describes it as this priceless treasure, right? It's a golden city. It's adorned with rare and costly jewels and stones. Don't worry, I don't have any symbolic ideas about what all of the jewels and stones might mean. John is just trying to help us to see there's something really fantastic about this place. And he's using language of treasure to sort of help us to sort of glimpse, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that? Wouldn't it be great to be caught up into this beautiful golden city adorned with rare and costly jewels that'll go on forever and ever? The city is a people, is lovingly gazing upon the groom. And the people are adorned in jewels, readied for this great connection with God's own self. Second, the city's a temple. Uh, it's an odd-looking city, right? As you read it described, you think this is surely symbolism and indeed. It is, right? But it, it seems so odd because what? It's a perfect cube, right? It's a weird city. Ah, it's this perfect cube coming down out of heaven 1500 miles you know high and wide and deep and you know and you're like whoa what is this cube coming down out of the sky that i see um and scholars would say hey you know essentially what is john describing but something like the holy of holies that would be the most interior beautiful connected space of god's temple on earth right the temple in jerusalem and this was an interesting space because it wasn't a space that human beings were allowed on the mass to go into. Uh, and only one human being, the, the high priest, was allowed to go into it once a year. But here we are in this idea of the Holy of Holies now comprising the whole of the city, right? In other words, the city is all contained inside of the space of the Holy of Holies, and we're meant to immediately understand this is a place of deep connection with God. The gates are open day and night, but by the way, the author says, there is no night there. So, you have this image of People coming in from the north, the south, the east, the west, right? From all directions, flooding into this core space in which God is absolutely present. Verse 22, John doesn't see an actual temple in the city because the temple is the Lord God Almighty, right? And the Lamb within the Holy of Holies. This is a space in which this people that are adorned, decked out in their finest are absolutely ready to meet this God, to engage with him. The point is that God is there. God is in our midst. The city becomes the context of perfect communion and connection with God's own self. Now third, diversity. This is really important. Cities are historically a haven of diversity, right? You experience that in Philadelphia, don't you? If you can't find your people in the suburb or the rural hamlet that you grew up in, guess what? You just might find them in the city because all of the weirdos from every other part of the world have come here. The city is a haven for minorities. It becomes a safe space for minorities because we group together. We find our own people. We find people that share ideas that didn't fit elsewhere, and we come together in the city. There's something really beautiful about even the city of man because it's a haven for minorities. And if you think about how this works itself out, it's very often a space in which minority voices that just get lost in the homogeneity of the world in which they're, they've come from, that they find a voice inside of the city, because they band together. It becomes a space that very often, they actually find that they have a seat at the table. And very often they become agents of change that are helpful to themselves and to everybody else that stayed back in the suburbs and the rural spaces of life. Cities are really beautiful in that way, but also broken, as we've noted. The city that John sees here includes the nations. I think John wants to highlight the diversity that was there. And the nations are represented by the kings that are streaming in and by the peoples from the nations that are streaming in from these gates, from the north, the south, the east, the west, right? From all directions that are streaming into the city. And what does John say they're bringing except their glory and their honor? That's, that's been a phrase that's just... There's something really beautiful about that phrase because it tells you on the one hand that the work that we do... Um, the imaginative work that we do, the creative work that we do, the labor that we do, that God intends in some way to honor that in his new city. That even though death lay between us and the future kingdom of God, that there's some assurance here that, you, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So picking up on themes, if you will, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, which is not just talking about my labor as a clergy person, but it's your labor in whatever space of work you work. It's the labor of the nations and the characteristic, uh, the unique characteristics that these people sort of share as a community. John seems to see that they too will be there in this city walking by the light of the Lamb. The Lamb is a lamp for them as well. There's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of beauty as you think about the anticipation of the city of God being this great diversity. Laman Sané, in his little book, it's called Christianity, Whose Religion? I've referenced it before over the years. But he has a lovely definition of conversion in which he imagines the cultures and all the peoples of the world turning toward the light of the Lamb. And he essentially describes conversion as this it is a turning of one's life and oneself fully all the way through toward the light of the Lamb. What does that mean? It means when I think about my individual story. It means what I, when I think about maybe, what does it mean that I am a, a person born in the, the southeastern part of the United States? That cultural experience that I grew up with, what does it look like to turn that toward the light of the Lamb? If I grew up outside of Christianity, instead of some other religious space, what would it look like for someone who's Muslim to turn toward the light of the Lamb? What would it look like for a Hindu to turn to the light of the Lamb? What would it look like, right, that doesn't in some way erase the cultural distinctions? And that's what's so absolutely beautiful to me about this part of the text of Scripture is that God has no intentions of erasing the diversity of the world, but rather he has every intention of affirming its beauty and its rightful place inside of his kingdom, his coming city. Andrew Walls, another missiologist and a pastor, missionary in Africa for a number of years, He says that this is what he calls an Ephesians moment, which is the moment in Ephesians when the church realized that not everybody had to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. But rather, that the church was going to be inhabited by the diversity of the world itself. And what happens when you turn in your cultural space, in your private space, in your personal story toward Christ, guess what the church gets? it gets more of Jesus, not less. Because your experience of Christ from your situated space in life is different from mine. And when I hear your story or the story of someone else from another part of the world or another faith, another religious tradition that is sort of caught onto the story of Christ, I get more of Jesus because they highlight different dimensions of his person and his reality. There's something really lovely about that. Christianity is not a religion for Westerners now. The gates are open north, south, east, and west that the nations may stream in. And this is the future that John imagines. In the inside bulletin cover, Mark Gornick has a lovely quote, which is, comes from his book, uh, To Live in Peace, which is his story of working in some of the poorest parts of Baltimore, another great city. And he says that heaven, right, in that space, that what God intends is that it would be a city of reconciliation of diver- around diversity that doesn't just leave us with boring homogeneity, but the rich diversity of all that God is doing. That's the world that God is bringing, a place of rich, beautiful diversity. And the only thing missing in this moment Is the city of man. The city of man in all of its selfishness whose activity and actions that are not growing out of God's love for us actually diminish human life and lead us into further acts of violence. See the aim of Revelation that we've said all along is that John intends this this writing of what he sees to give it to the church so that they would redirect their love toward the love that God has shown them in Jesus, so that their vision of the good life wouldn't be marked as much by what maybe the popular culture of the Roman society at the time would have said, the Roman dream or what we might call the American dream or some other dream, but rather that it would be marked by the actual promises of God's future. And we would aim our lives there. We'd say, we want that world of beauty and goodness and truth and justice also. And we want the story that Jesus is telling through his life, his death, his resurrection, to come true in that way. Revelation is really calling us to a practice of the Christian life now. It's not just about the future. It's about today. It's about this week. It's about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, the things that you're going to encounter this week. So how do we practice the city of God now? Um, the first thing I'll say is this, is that the church has practiced it poorly. <laughs> and some of you, you know, have uh, really probably all of us have grown up in church contexts that in one way or another distort the aim that God wants to direct our lives in, right? Um, you've grown up in situations that feel too fundamentalistic or you've grown up in situations where there's too much tight control in the church and it feels oppressive and when you meet your friends that are outside of the church their lives seem like it has more liberty and fluidity than your own life we've grown up in context where we become so sure that we have figured the kingdom of god out that we oppress people with the kingdom of god in other words we just borrow the methods and the strategies and the images of the city of man to enact our idea of the city of God. Leslie Nubigan, another missionary, he says it's so important for us to hold on to this idea that in this life, you will never nail down the kingdom of God. You will never get it absolutely right. Your vision will never be perfect because death lay between us and our experience of God's future and when we hold on to that what happens to us it leads us into a practice of humility I think so that when you think about how do we practice the kingdom of God well it means to practice humility humility with the way we hold our ideas humility with the way we assume our certainty humility with the way we interact with our neighbors and it leads us to another practice it leads us to a practice of patience with our neighbors Because we recognize that our interactions with our neighbor, particularly those that we may find some disagreement with, that guess what? We have no power to change hearts and minds. But we believe that God is present in our world by his Holy Spirit, engaging the people that we interact with, that we bump into. Leads to the practice of tolerance with one another because we're willing to look at our neighbor with whom we disagree or find some difference or a neighbor that's suffering and we discern the image and likeness of God in our neighbor and so we bear up with them and we create space for them that's respectful has your experience of the church been an experience of its humility of its patience of its tolerance. A fourth thing, our practice needs to be void of any hint of self-righteousness. Any hint of self-righteousness. Because we understand that the community that we are this morning, that we're gathered together on the basis of Jesus's story and not our own. We are here by an act of God's grace And that alone enables us to set aside self-righteousness and practice humility and practice patience and practice tolerance and engage the life of our world and the life of our neighbor for the good because we really do believe that this future city is coming to earth. And we will stand in that city and we will be a part of the bride that is adorned, ready for her groom that's God's promise to us let's pray together our father in heaven we we inhabit these words so poorly we struggle with them they seem fantastic they seem so extreme the beauty that is described seems so ornate and over the top that we don't even know how to live with them today but would you help us to remember the beauty of Jesus who lived, who died, who is risen, and who will come again in glory. Would you help us to behold our lamb and would you help us to love him so that we might live in this world differently in his likeness as agents reflecting the future coming kingdom of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.